Welcome to the Voyages and Travels of the Ambassadors, the epic story of a 17th century trade expedition from Germany to Persia that failed so completely its leader was publicly executed upon his return. This is episode 19, Isfahan Throwdown. The ambassadors from Holstein arrive in the capital of Persia on August 3, 1637. They are greeted in the typical fashion with mounted soldiers, music, a procession through crowded streets, and a luxurious banquet. They are overjoyed that the long and difficult journey is over, but the mood evaporates quickly. The joy we conceived at our having at last arrived to a place where we hoped to put a period to our negotiation was soon disturbed by a most unhappy accident, Adam Hilarius writes. First, their living quarters, instead of all being located on the same block, are scattered in various buildings up and down the Armenian suburb called Nukufa. The ambassadors are not happy about the inconvenience this causes, so they send someone into the city, which is about a mile away, to make better arrangements. And second, on August 7, two servants get into an argument, one from the household of the ambassador from India, the other belonging to the Persian guide who escorted the Germans to Isfahan. The Indian ambassador who was living nearby has some 300 servants on his staff, and Olarius tells us that most of them are Uzbeks. In 1637, India's borders stretch west past the Indus River into what is today the nation of Pakistan, and north to the borders of Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. Persia controls parts of Pakistan and all of what is now Afghanistan, and India is a major export destination for Persian merchants. The primary trade route to India goes through the city of Kandahar, which has been of great military and commercial importance for all of recorded history. Some of the Indian servants are apparently loitering on the street, watching the Persian servants unload the German caravan, when one of the Persian workers says his opinion of them would improve if they would pitch in and help. One of the Uzbek men answers a bit too snappishly, and the Persian strikes him on the head with his cane. The offended Indian servant calls to some of his comrades, who are idling in the shade of a nearby tree, and they all proceed to beat the Persian servant with stones. Hilarius uses the word domestics to describe the profession of the men, and writes that our domestics report the fight to the steward. The steward and a handful of soldiers attack the Indian domestics, whose numbers have swelled to near thirty, mortally wounding one and chasing the rest back to their quarters. The Indians are justifiably upset, not so much by the death of their man, but by the fact that the Germans have brought trophies back from the fight—a sword, a dagger, and a small purse containing a small amount of money. The Indians threaten revenge, and it comes quickly when they encounter the German man returning from his errand to the city. The ambassador from India feeds his horses in an area outside the city. His men see the German coming and attack. He defends himself with sword and pistol, but dies in a hail of arrows. The Indians cut off his head and play some sort of game with it, then drag his body behind a horse and leave it to be eaten by a pack of dogs. The news of the murder convinces Ambassador Brueggemann that more revenge is coming, and he sends orders that everyone from their caravan should be on their guard and make their way to the ambassador's residence. Unfortunately for them, 
The Indians have anticipated this and blocked the streets, so no one can run the gauntlet without hazard of being killed. However, Olarius writes, reflecting on the imminent and inevitable danger it was to lie scattered up and down in several quarters, most of the domestics thought it their safest course, though with some danger, to make their way to the house where the ambassadors were, which was in the corner of a narrow street. Most of them escaped the fury of the Indians, but some were mortally wounded, and I myself came very near it, for I was no sooner got within the door, but an arrow came grazing through my hair, and was shot into one of the posts. The arrows are as dangerous as a bullet from a firelock, he says. Made of cane with a sharp iron tip, they are so light that even the weakest archer can deliver them with incredible swiftness. The Indians are also armed with muskets and arquebuses, which have a small bore and are very accurate. The arquebus, a heavy, long-barreled predecessor of the musket, was the first gun to rest on the shoulder when being fired. Although it required a stand to shoot, it was portable, could pierce armor within fifty yards, and was at the forefront of military technology in the mid-fifteenth century. The first documented use of the term arquebus dates to 1364. As noted in previous episodes, the Germans have small cannons, muskets, pistols, and an early type of hand grenade called a grenado. Because the battle erupts before all the baggage can be unpacked, the Germans use it for cover in the street and to barricade themselves in the ambassador's lodgings. But the Indians take cover behind a wall, through which they punch several holes, so that they might shoot with less danger to themselves and more annoyance to the Germans. You can see an illustration of the battle on page 502 of the 1663 German edition. One of our cannoneers, as he was going to level a small piece at the Indians, was killed, Olarius writes. Sergeant Moroy, a Scotchman, seeing the cannoneer fall at his feet, took up his musket and set himself in a posture of revenging his comrade's death. He was so fortunate as to kill five or six Indians, but at last an arrow takes him just in the breast, which, not at all troubled at, he plucked it out, and, having charged his musket once more, killed another man, and then fell down dead upon the place. The Germans finally retreat into the house as the Indians bring in reinforcements and ransack the baggage. They also gain a tactical advantage by forcing their way onto the adjacent house. The owner tries to stop them, so they cut off his hands, kill him, and take up positions on the roof, which looks down on the courtyard occupied by the Germans. Albrecht von Mandelslo and a few others get to the top of their own house and shoot at the Indians. Mandelslo, who has an excellent faculty in the handling of firearms, kills the leader of the Indian party with a pistol shot. His death infuriates them so much that the Indians abandon their rooftop position and storm the front doors of the house. It is only a matter of time until the doors give way, so the ambassadors smash through the walls of the adjoining houses. The Armenians who live there welcome them joyfully and bring ladders to help them down into a garden. Valerius does not make it clear where exactly the garden is, but he does say it is very pleasant, even though they expect to be killed at any moment. Just as the Germans run out of options, a messenger arrives from the Shah's court and declares a ceasefire. It appears to be the third time he has given the order, but the heat of the engagement had prevented all the combatants from hearing the message. A hundred well-armed soldiers also arrive, and the Indians disperse. The battle, which lasted more than four hours, is over. 
The Germans lose five men killed and ten wounded. According to the information received from the Persians, the Indians lose 24 killed and many more wounded. This was the most unhappy accident we met with in all our travels, Olarius writes, for after we had escaped all the dangers which we might well have fallen in the way, and the injuries might have been done to us by the most cruel and barbarous people through whose territory we passed, this sad accident happened to us in the chief city of the kingdom where we thought to find rest after all the hardships we had endured. Because the Indian ambassador had connived to take the German man's head, and because it was this murder that started the battle, the Shah wants the Indian ambassador's head in return. The Shah's chancellor intervenes, saying that the ambassadors of both countries are not only strangers but guests, and that the right to punish them belongs to their own masters, and not to the Shah. The Shah relents and orders the Indian ambassador to leave the country. Valerius tells us that, in general, the Indians are good-natured, civil, friendly, and their conversation not unpleasant, provided that no one does them any injury. But they are also apt to resent any kind of insult. They are never satisfied without taking the blood of those who do the offending. And he also makes sure to tell his readers that he knows this otherwise than by hearsay. Upon examination of the plundered baggage, the Germans find they have lost food and property worth more than four thousand crowns. The Indians, being Muslim, apparently do not like sausage, tongue, or bacon, because those foods have been tossed into the dirt of the street. The Shah demands a full accounting of the losses, and would have defrayed the expense if Brueggemann had allowed it. He has refused such offers before, and Olarius makes sure to tell us that the behavior is well known to everyone in the retinue. They move into their new lodgings in the city the next day, August 8, and the Shah orders a travel ban on the 12,000 members of the Indian community in Isfahan. Anyone from that community seen on the street while the Germans are moving will face execution. Their new quarters are spacious, with enough room for everyone— the complex has four garden courtyards, with a river running through two of them, and continuing through some of the halls and galleries, and finally disappearing under the main part of the complex, which contains the apartment of the ambassadors. A large octagonal wall with a fountain forms the middle of the complex, and a door at every side of the octagon leads to other rooms. On the second story, some balconies overlook the gardens, and some look inward toward the hall. Every day the Germans receive sixteen sheep, one hundred fowl, two hundred eggs, one hundred batmans of wine, and an abundant amount of fruits and spices. This should, in theory, make everyone happy, but Olarius tells us that one of the ambassadors, I mean him of Hamburg, fails to properly manage the provisions. He is referring to Brueggemann, of course, and tells us that the food is squandered away by connivance, or sent to the Armenians, and sometimes even to common prostitutes. As a result, the rest of the party must make do with one meal a day, and on some days the servants have no food at all. On August 10, the ambassadors send messengers to the Russian representative whom we met on the voyage down the Volga. Their goal is to discuss concerns about the Persians that both countries share. For their part, the Persians are not pleased to see the Germans in their own European clothing, so they begin wearing Russian clothes, that are somewhat nearer to the Persian fashion. 
Several men died that week, including some who had been wounded in the battle with the Indians, one of whom had taken a poisoned arrow to the knee. The harbinger, whose job on the trip is to go ahead of the company and obtain lodgings, also dies the same day of the bloody flux, but only after being ill with what Alarius calls the Tertian ague. The men are buried in the church graveyard in the Armenian suburb of Nukulfa. The first audience with Shah Safi occurs on August 16. Forty horses from the Shah's own stables arrive to take them to dinner. The ambassadors, the gentlemen, and the principal officers of the trade mission are allowed to ride, and the rest go on foot. As he has done before in different cities, Olarius describes the order of march. First marched three men on horseback, two fully armed and wearing decorative gold armor, and the third armed only as a cavalryman with back, breast, and pot, referring to the helmet and plates of armor protecting the man's back and chest. After him marched forty persons, each with a pair of the best pistols that could be bought in the Low Countries, the European coastal countries of Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg. Next, four men carrying curved scimitars of Persian design are followed by two men with amber walking sticks, which are apparently highly esteemed by the Persians, four men carrying large candlesticks of amber, two men carrying a cabinet of white and yellow amber, and finally four others carrying a cabinet of ebony garnished with silver. We saw a similar cabinet presented as a gift in Moscow, and this one also contains golden boxes full of drugs, essences, and magisteries, each with a label that describes its contents. Custom demands that each ambassador also present his own gift to the Shah. Ambassador Crucius carries a self-cocking arquebus with a stalk of ebony, a vessel of rock crystal set with gold, rubies, and turquoise, a cabinet of amber, and a small chiming clock. Ambassador Brueggemann brings a gilt brass candlestick with thirty branches and a built-in chiming clock, a pair of gilt pistols in very rich holsters, an hourglass, a watch in a topaz case, a bracelet of diamonds and rubies, and a document that transfers to the Shah's possession the two large cannons the Germans had left behind at Artabil. Everyone had his place assigned to him, the end that all things might be presented to the king with the observance of some order, Olarius writes, providing further details of how the march should proceed. Three sergeants with halberds precede fifteen musketeers. Then the marshal walks alone before the gentlemen, who walk three abreast. Then three trumpeters, followed by guards four abreast, followed immediately by the two ambassadors, flanked on each side by eight halberdiers, and behind them the two interpreters followed by eight pages on horseback in very rich clothing, and after them the rest of our people, marching three abreast and eight deep. After this detailed description, we discover that Olarius is referring to the order of march preferred by the Germans, not the order preferred by the Persians. And the order disintegrates into chaos as soon as they enter the street. The Persians never observe such order in any ceremony, he writes, and they were all in disorder and marched with such confusion that the ambassador's retinue could not make the procession they expected. When they finally make it to the palace, the master of ceremonies tells them to rest until he has acquainted the king with their arrival. A half hour later, several great lords introduce themselves to the ambassadors, saying that the shah is ready to receive them. 
we were brought through a spacious court, which was of greater length than breadth, and in which there was on both sides about six paces distance from one wall, another lower wall, built close to a row of trees, and all along that lower wall stood the musketeers and the other guards in a file on both sides. The reception area is in a great hall at the end of the great court, with light coming in from all sides. Nearby, fifty excellent horses, covered with gold and silver brocade, stand in the open air, fastened by one of the hinder feet to a stake stuck in the ground. Not far from there, two great cisterns, four feet square, contain cold water and jars of cooling wine. The hall is on a platform, three steps from the ground, fifty feet wide and seventy-five feet long. At the entrance is an alcove covered with curtains of red cotton that can be taken up and let down with silk strings. On the left hand, as you come in, are paintings of events in European history. The floor is covered with a gold and silver rug. In the middle of the hall is a fountain, and floating in the basin of water is an abundance of flowers, lemons, oranges, apples, and other fruits. Shah Safi sits on a satin cushion behind the fountain, his back to the wall. He is about twenty-seven years old, Olarius says, handsome-bodied, having a graceful aspect, and of a clear and smooth complexion, somewhat hawk-nosed, as most of the Persians are, with a little black mustache on his upper lip. There is nothing fancy about his clothes, but he is wearing a plume of heron feathers, fastened to his head, with a bracelet of diamonds. He is wearing a coat without sleeves, consisting of two sable skins hanging around his neck, and at his side is a scimitar adorned with gold and precious stones. On the ground behind him lay a bow and arrows. Twenty men stand to his right, most of them being the sons of khans and sultans, governors of provinces, and among them are some eunuchs. They are all very handsome, but it seems to Alarius that the most handsome among them has been chosen to hold a fan, which he incessantly waves above the shah. Nearby is the groom of the chamber, the lord chamberlain of the household, the chancellor, and around him the khans and great lords of the privy council. At the entrance of the hall, on the left, are the ambassadors of an Arabian prince sent to seek military aid against the Ottomans, and the Russian ambassador. Ambassadors Brueggemann and Crucius are escorted to meet the shah. Two men that Olarius calls conductors take them under the arms and hold their hands tightly to prevent any possible violence a procedure begun during the reign of Shah Abbas after certain Turkish ambassadors tried to kill him. The Germans are seated near thirteen very handsome women dancers, and some of them are the most beautiful courtesans of the city who pay a yearly tax to conduct their business and must come to the court whenever the Shah sends for them. We were told, Olarius writes, that a man might have his choice of them for a Tuman. You will remember from episode 13 that a tuman is not an actual coin, but a unit of accounting. In the 1930s, one tuman was equivalent to about five American dollars. Dinner is preceded by an hour of fruit, wine, and entertainment by a magician who does all sorts of tricks that Olarius has never seen before. Dinner is similar to what we saw in shamaki, rice of all colors, mutton boiled and roasted, tame and wild fowl, omelets, pies, spinach pork, and five or six other sorts of meats, all served in the same dish. Because of the seating arrangements, the Persians do not serve different courses. Instead of sitting across from one another and passing food around, guests are all seated on the same side of the table and serve their own dish of mixed meats, 
Dinner takes about an hour and a half, and grace is said afterwards. Warm water is brought for guests to wash their hands. The Lord Chamberlain cries aloud, Make us thankful for this repast. Prosper the king's affairs. Give his soldiers and servants courage. This we pray thee, O God. And everyone answers, Allah, Allah. Everyone leaves without speaking to one another, which is according to the custom of the country. The Germans follow, making a low bow to the Shah, and they discover afterward that a spy had been hidden nearby during dinner, observing their demeanor, listening to whatever they said among themselves, and reporting back to the Shah. Valerius tells us that Ambassador Brueggemann is critical of the paintings, the entertainment, and the manner of the Persians, and that this works to his disadvantage and prejudice during the later negotiations. In the next episode, we attend an Armenian wedding, hear about the international trade routes built by Armenian silk traders and why they were forcibly relocated to Isfahan, and how many sword blows it takes to execute the Shah's German watchmaker on the voyages and travels of the ambassadors. <laughs>